Amen. Thank you, Alex. Good job. Good song. Go ahead and get in your Bible, if you would, to Job chapter 4. Job chapter 4. Been working our way through the book of Job on Wednesday nights when I teach. And though we don't know for sure when Job lived or where the land of Uz is, where he lived, or who the human pen and the hand of God was to write the book of Job, we do know that God inspired and preserved this book and the words of this book for us today. Uh, Two weeks ago, we talked about Job losing sight of the value of his life. I'm not being critical of Job in that. Uh, I just reminded us that regardless of whether we understand what's going on in our life or not, uh, God has a purpose and plan for our life as long as we live. And we saw how Job's trial went on for months. We saw how three of his good friends made plans to meet up and to comfort Job, and they sat for seven days on the ground in silence with him. They were true friends. If you remember, then Job was the one to break the seven days of silence to tell his friends he did not understand why God had allowed him to live. He did not. uh, he, He told his friends that he wanted to die, uh, and he had lost sight of any good influence he'd have ever in his life. And again, before we get critical of Job getting to that point, remember in a couple of moments he learned about uh, all of his wealth being gone, hundreds of his employees being dead, and all ten of his children killed when a great wind knocked the house down on them. Remember Job then, he shaved his head and sat in the ashes for relief from oozing boils that covered him from head to toe. And as he sat there, he scraped the filthy contents that oozed out with a pottery sherd. Remember then Job's wife who had gone through all this with Job and has my sympathy for watching her husband suffer like that for months. Uh, In a weak moment, she told him just to curse God. And at that time, Job had even lost the loving sympathy of the wife he loved as he sat there covered with soot and boils and pus and ashes. And as we learned, if the months of that were not enough, the dregs of society would come by and mock Job and spit on him. Uh, Satan had fully done everything God allowed him to do to bring Job down. Satan had attempted to hurt Job in every and any way possible because he is a roaring lion who walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And though Job's trials would have been too much for any of us, they were not too much for Job or for his wife. And certainly, after hearing Job's brokenness and traveling so far to meet him and then sitting in silence with him for seven days, we would expect Job's friends to speak sympathetic and comforting words to Job. I mean, friends are always helpful, right? (laughs) Fact is, sitting silently for seven days with your own thoughts has never helped anyone. What comes out of our mouth after we've sat alone with our thoughts can be very different from what we originally intended. I mean, his friends came to comfort and mourn with Job. 
I hope you understand tonight that our minds outside the boundaries of God's words are terrible enemies. And our minds easily, the thoughts of our mind and the intentions of our heart, they easily push us down dark holes. The first one to speak would be a man named Eliphaz. His name actually means God is strength or to whom God is strength. And though these three friends traveled together to see Job, Eliphaz is their leader. And he speaks first to Job. I wonder what kind of encouraging and helpful words Eliphaz will have for his friend Job, who's sitting there in despair, wishing he were dead. If you would stand, please, if you're able to stand and honor the Word of God. Tell my thought for tonight is the wounds of a friend. The wounds of a friend. Job chapter 4, verse 1 says, Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If we say to a commune with thee, wilt thou be grieved? But who can withhold himself from speaking? Behold, thou hast instructed many, and thou hast strengthened the weak hands. That words have upholden him that was falling, and thou hast strengthened the feeble knees. But now it has come upon thee, and thou feignest. It toucheth thee, and thou art troubled. Is not this thy fear, thy confidence, thy hope, and the uprightness of thy ways? Remember, I pray thee, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the righteous cut off? Even as I have seen, they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. By the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his nostrils are they consumed. Thank you, might be seated. I spent a lot of time thinking and praying about how to cover the next 33 chapters in Job. There's pretty much a reason why people don't go through the book of Job verse by verse. And there's pretty much a reason why when we sit down to read the book of Job, we're immediately captivated by the first few chapters and then get really bogged down in between chapter 3 and, and chapter 37. I mean, basically, during those chapters, Job and his friends take turns speaking uh, between Job's answers. Eliphaz speaks three times, uh, Bildad speaks three times, Zophar speaks twice, and finally, another man named Elihu, who had been listening in this whole time, he speaks for six chapters. Now, all of these men, including Job, they would have been intellectuals of their day, and as you read what they all have to say, including Job, they all attempt to wax eloquent and very poetic in what they have to say. Now, and so what I basically decided to do was I want to spend one week on each of Job's friends and then a couple of weeks on Job's answers to them. Uh, and in spending more time on Job's answers, uh, I think you and I, then we get some kind of an insight into what people of faith knew and did before the law of Moses. Remember, Job's days were likely the days of the patriarchs and most likely uh, during Isaac or Jacob's time. What did they know or believe? Now, before you allow your dander to get too much in a wad because I'm not covering these men uh, better, I think it's also too important to note what God said about what these men said. Uh, keep your hand there. Go back to Job 42. Job 42. 
And I think when we understand what God said about what these men said, it makes a lot more sense why we don't spend a lot of time on what they said. In Job chapter 42, um, in verse 7, and says, It was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends, for ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right as my servant Job hath. So God's assessment of what Job had to say is, Listen, Job spoke right about me. But Eliphaz, you and your two buddies, you did not speak what was right about me. And so understand that when we gloss over the things that Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar said, we're actually glossing over something that God said inaccurately represented him. I mean, I hope you understand the Bible accurately records what these men said that was inaccurate. I mean, the Bible accurately records the words of Satan, though he lies. The Bible records the deeds of evil men and sometimes evil deeds of good men because they're accurately recorded. And so here we have the words that are not accurate about God accurately recorded for us. Now at a time when Job really needed someone to speak comforting words to him, basically what's going to happen instead is this kind of an intellectual debate. Uh, the wise man said in Proverbs 27, 19, as in water, face answereth to face, so the heart of man to man. So what does that mean? It means that you need to speak from your heart to reach a heart. As in water, face answereth to face, so the heart of man to man. You're only going to reach someone's heart speaking from your heart. You're never going to reach someone's heart speaking from your head. And by the way, you'll never reach their heart speaking to their head. And so what we have here is instead of uh, some friends speaking from their heart to their friends, we have some intellectual debates going on between these men who like to wax eloquent and poetic and intellectually debate things. And it doesn't surprise us, or it shouldn't, that what they had to say was no help for the broken heart of Job as they spoke to his mind. Uh, over the course of those seven days, sitting in silence with Job, Job's friends had completely lost sight of why they came. Do you remember why they came? In Job chapter 2 and verse 11, it says, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that was come upon him, they came every one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Namathite, for they had made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. That's why they did this. Who knows how many hundreds of miles they traveled? Who knows at what expense it took? Who knows what they set aside from their personal schedule? They were Job's friends, and they came to comfort him and mourn with him. Now, as we begin to think about Eliphaz, what he had to say, the first thing we notice is, number one, the authority for what Eliphaz had to say was himself and his personal experience. In verse 8, Eliphaz here says, Even as I have seen, and I've got those three words circled because 
that's the basis and foundation for what Eliphaz has to say. Even as I have seen, they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. By the blast of God they perish. By the breath of his nostrils are they consumed. Uh, Listen, when the extent of our worldview, our view of God and life, is limited to our own experiences, you and I are always going to be messed up. I hope you understand that one of the purposes of the Bible is to help you and I interpret our personal experiences. To help us recognize what is our own flawed view. To recognize where the influence of Satan starts. To know what is of God and what is of man. See, it's very different to say, I have seen is the authority for what you are about to say than to say God has written. By the way, I hope you notice when you come to this church, you oftentimes hear something like the Bible says. We very clearly make the Bible rather than me our final authority for what we do. Now the experience that Eliphaz had that made him feel qualified to assess his Job's situation was a spiritual one. He describes it beginning in verse 13. Eliphaz says here in verse 13, In thoughts from the visions of the night when, the, when deep sleep falleth on men, fear came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones to shake. Then a spirit passed before my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern the form thereof. An image was before mine eyes. There was silence. I heard a voice saying, and we'll read what this spirit said in a moment. And so basically, Eliphaz's final authority for what he has to say is his personal experience, and in particular, he thinks he's qualified to judge the situation because he had this experience late in the night. You see, people who understand who they are in themselves understand that they are not adequate judges of what's really going on. We're not adequate judges of what's going on in ourselves at times, not with others at times, and certainly not in the spiritual realm based on our purchase personal experiences. You see, the opposite of interpreting our per- personal experiences in light of the Bible is what the charismatic movement does and they interpret the Bible in light of their personal experiences. I mean, you can talk to 100 people who go to a church where they speak in tongues, and it won't matter to them that the Bible says, Paul says, in the church I'd rather speak 10,000 words that are understood than five in an unknown tongue, and that will not matter to them one bit. Not one bit. Because they interpret the Bible in light of their personal experiences. This is what I felt. This is what I saw. You see, our personal experiences can be caused by man. Our personal experiences can be influenced by substances. Our personal experience can be the result of evil spirits. Our personal experiences can be just coincidental. Our personal experiences can be caused by God, our Creator, and and the Savior of those who believe on Christ. (laughs) In fact, if you've ever read any amount of near-death experiences, I've got a whole book of them, one of the things you're going to conclude as you walk away is something's amiss here. They're not the same. 
People didn't see the same things. People didn't have those, uh, uh, they didn't hear the same things. They, they weren't under the same circumstances. And you can't walk away from that and say, well, they're all right. No, you've got to be honest and you walk away from it and say, you know what? Some of that is their imagination and some of that is the drugs they were taking because a lot of times when people are near death, they're taking some pretty heavy drugs. Uh, some of those experiences are the result of evil spirits and some of them probably are true and of God. How do you sort them out? God gave us a book to help us with that. And though Eliphaz thought his experience should impress the others as if you're supposed to sit there and say, ooh, wow, that happened to you. Let me hear what you have to say. I mean, basically, as he describes what happens to him, it's, it's a, a kind of a, a really basic message that it starts off with, and in the end, it's completely hopeless. Now, as we read what the message of this uh, spirit to Eliphaz does, and by the way, spirits are real. There's evil spirits, and there are angels that are good spirits, and we are basically told by God to leave all that stuff alone. We're supposed to be focused on Christ, supposed to be focused on the written words of God, supposed to be uh, listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit that lives in a true believer. But as we read what Eliphaz says was the message of this uh, spirit, I I want you to recognize as we read that, number one, there's really no truth that's, wow, that's something. It's like Eliphaz has this big buildup, and then he's going to like say nothing. And I want you to notice also the hopelessness of the message. Let's read what this spirit allegedly says to Eliphaz, verse 17. Verse 16 concludes, I heard a voice saying, here's the message, verse 17. Shall mortal man be more just than God? Shall a man be more pure than his maker? I mean, think about that. I mean, is that some great news? God's better than you? Wow. I'd have never thunk that. Notice the hopelessness then. Behold, he put no trust in his servants. And his angels he charged with folly. How much less in them that dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is a dust, which are crushed before the moth, they're destroyed from morning to evening. They perish forever without any regarding it. Doth not their excellency which is in them go away? They die even without wisdom. I mean, what a hopeless message. God's greater than you. Everybody's gonna die. God doesn't trust you. <laughs> and you're just gonna go away and never have any wisdom. Now, if you have some kind of spiritual discernment, you understand that when someone brings that kind of a hopeless message, something's wrong if you want to try to link that to God. In fact, one of the best ways to recognize that a voice that's something other than the voice of God is what the end is of what's being said. The end of God bringing our sins and faults to our attention is to bring us to a place of repentance, forgiveness and peace with God. That's the end. Just like we talked about on Sunday morning. God brought the sins 
of the people of Israel to their attention. He said, listen, you know, you guys, I've been judging you. Things are a mess around you. You're living in iniquity. Uh, you're, you're showing up to the temple. You're going through the motions. Your heart isn't in it. I hate it. But how does God conclude? He says, come to me. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. See, when a message is of, of, of God, in the end, there's always something good, something hopeful, something positive, some resolution. The end of our flesh or a fallen spirit bringing our sins and our faults to our attention is hopelessness. You'll never be any better. This is just how you are. There's, there's no hope for you. And probably people all over this room, you allow those thoughts to be entertained in your head when if you would pause and think, they are not true. Now there are a lot of things people think make them qualified to offer advice and to know what's going on. But our own experiences and dreams are among the most unreliable especially when it comes to spiritual things. By the way, I hope as you consider why you do what you do and why you believe what you believe, I hope your final authority is this book rather than you. You greatly handicap your entire life and your whole spiritual walk if you don't know what this book says. Which gets us to our second thing, number two. Eliphaz came to wrong conclusions about Job because he made his conclusions based on his personal experience. Now you remember what God said about Job in chapter 2 and verse 3. The Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil, and still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him, to destroy him without cause. And so according to God, all the things that happened in Job's life were, quote, without cause. That, that doesn't mean God didn't have a purpose for them. God did have a purpose for them. What it means is that there was nothing in Job's life that caused God to allow Satan to do these things to him. And so when... when Eliphaz is going to make his accusations about why these things are going to happen in Job's life. Listen, they are completely opposite of what God said. None of what happened to Job was God's discipline. God had a plan in what he allowed and in the next step for maturity of the best man on the planet. But none of what happened was God's discipline. I hope you know not everything bad that happens in the life of a believer is discipline from God. Listen, some bad things that happen to us, they are because God scourges every son whom he receiveth, according to Hebrews 12, 6. I mean, but other bad things that God allows in our life, some are there to mature and grow us. Others are there as God allows things that are opportunities for other people to see the value of faith. 
Have you ever really thought that what is happening in your life or the life of someone you know, it isn't really even about them. It's how someone else will see how they respond. Now because Eliphaz's final authority was himself, he wrongly blamed everything that happened to Job on Job's sins. Now this is going to be a little tedious, but this is an adult Bible study. And so what I'm going to do is from the three times that Job or Eliphaz speaks, uh, two chapters, one time, one chapter, another time, uh, and the third time, another chapter, I want to just read the accusations he made at Job. This is Job's friend. This is why Eliphaz said, Everything that happened to Job happened. Remember, he's speaking to his friend who lost everything, including his children, who's sitting covered with soot in a pile of ashes, scraping the ooze from his boils and the spittle from his face for months. This is why Eliphaz said it happened. Notice in chapter 4, he accuses Job of being strong for others, but failing now that something happened to him. Job chapter 4, verse 3, Behold, thou hast instructed many, thou hast strengthened the weak hands. Thy words have upholden him that was falling. Thou hast strengthened the feeble knees, but now it's come upon thee, and thou feignest. It toucheth thee and thou art troubled. Notice he makes sure that Job understands he's not innocent and he's not righteous. In chapter 4 and verse 7, remember, I pray thee, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the righteous cut off? Notice then, if you go up to chapter 5, he accuses Job of having been foolish and envious, and that the death of his children was his own fault. In chapter 5 and verse 2, For wrath killeth the foolish man, envy slayeth the silly one. I've seen the foolish taking root, but suddenly I curse his habitation. His children are far from safety, and they're crushed in the gate. Neither is there any to deliver them. (laughs) Listen, God said Job had been mature, complete, and upright, and that he had a healthy fear of God. Imagine how these accusations of Eliphaz crushed Job, scraping sores in an ash heap from a friend from whom he hoped for comfort. Notice in chapter 5 and verse 17, Job was being punished by God in all of this. Verse 17, Behold, happy is the man whom God correcteth. Therefore despise not thou the chastening of the Almighty. Turn up to chapter 15 and for the second time that Eliphaz speaks. Notice this accusation in Job chapter 15. He's going to accuse Job of being unwise and that Job didn't have enough fear of God, which hindered his prayer life. In chapter 15 and verse 1, then answered Eliphaz the Temanite and said, Should a wise man utter vain knowledge? Fill his belly with the east wind? Should he reason with unprofitable talk or with speeches wherewith he can do no good? Yea, thou castest off fear and restrainest prayer before God. And then he goes on to say that Job was proud. In verse 6, thine own mouth condemneth thee. 
Not I. Yea, thine own lips testify against thee. Against thee. Art thou the first man that was born? Or wast thou made before the hills? Listen, God said that Job has chewed evil. God said Job lived with integrity. Again, imagine how Eliphaz's accusations crushed Job as he considered his ten dead children. Hundreds of dead employees. He expected comfort from his friends. Notice in chapter 15 and verse 31, he accuses Job of being, being a deceived hypocrite and that he obtained his wealth by bribery. Uh, verse 31 of chapter 15. He says, let not him that is deceived trust in vanity, for vanity shall be his recompense. It shall be accomplished before his time, and his branch shall not be green. He shall shake off his unripe grapes, grape as the vine, and shall cast off his flower as the olive tree. For the congregation of hypocrites shall be desolate. Fire shall consume the tabernacles of bribery. They conceive mischief and bring forth vanity, and their belly prepareth deceit. Go up to chapter 22, and the third time Eliphaz speaks to Job. Here he's going to basically accuse Job of being secretly wicked and not charitable enough with his wealth. In chapter 22 and verse 5, Is not thy wickedness great? Thine iniquity is infinite? Thou hast taken a pledge uh, from thy brother for naught and stripped the naked of their clothing. Thou hast not given water to the weary to drink. Thou hast withholden bread from the hungry. But as for the mighty man, he had the earth, and the honorable man dwell in it. Thou hast sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless have been broken. And if that were not enough, he accuses Job of just being plain away from God and needed to return and repent. Verse 23 of chapter 22. Receive, I pray thee, the law from his mouth, Lay up his words in thine heart. If thou return to the Almighty, thou shalt be built up. Thou shalt put away iniquity far from thy tabernacles. Remember, God said the things that happened to Job had nothing to do with his lack of righteousness or lack of faith or abandoning God and his success and wealth. Listen, Eliphaz could not have been more wrong, though he was very sincere, you see, Eliphaz's view of Job and why this happened to Job, it was completely wrong, and instead of comforting Job, it crushed him. We've all heard people say with friends like that, who needs enemies? And Eliphaz here becomes another pawn of Satan to hurt Job. I mean, Job withstood the hurricane winds of big events. I wonder how he will survive the slow drip of months of trial and false accusations by the leader of his friends. See, Eliphaz thought he was right in his conclusions, but he was wrong. The fact of the matter is, is that none of us know as much as we think we know. I'm amazed at the conclusions people jump to around here. We don't really know what's going on. You don't really know everything that's going on in someone's marriage but you sure have an opinion. You don't really know everything that's going on with how they handle their children, but you sure think you know what the video looks like from the three-minute snapshot you've seen. You don't know what's going on with their finances. 
See, the thing of it is, is we all know that we don't know, but we don't let our brain tell our tongue to be quiet. You don't know what's going on in the nursery because of one turn every five weeks. Or a 60-second snapshot when you pick your kids up. You don't know what's going on in the youth ministry because of what a 13-year-old says. Should we believe your 13-year-old's report of what you do at home? Well, that's wrong, but what they say about the youth ministry, that's right. See, the thing of it is, is you don't know, and you usually don't even bother to ask someone who might know. And, and again, we know that we don't really know, but we don't let our brain tell our tongue to be quiet like we should. Eliphaz didn't live near Job. He could not possibly have spent large segments of time either in public or private with Job. He really didn't know, but it didn't stop Eliphaz from having a strong opinion that he was willing to voice. He was smart, he was successful, but he was not wise, neither was he careful with his accusations or his opinions. And in the end, God was happy with Job, but he was not happy with Eliphaz. And hear me when I say this. He will not be happy with you or me if we are careless with our criticism and our opinions. Which gets us to some practical applications of this interaction between Eliphaz and his accusations of Job. Uh, I've got a lot of them, and so I'll just go to I run out of time. Here's number one. There's a time to debate issues and point out sins, and there's also a time to comfort those who are struggling. And Paul said, rejoice with them that rejoice, weep with them that weep, Romans 12, 15. <laughs> and though that takes some discernment on our part, those who are wise try to be what their friends and people around them need instead of giving them what you want to give them. Be careful giving people a piece of your mind. You can't afford it. See, sometimes the most loving thing we can do is be honest with someone about their sins and faults. Other times, the most loving thing we can do is keep our mouth shut and only speak comforting and encouraging words to them. Though again, that takes some discernment on our part. Those who are wise are trying to be what their friends and the people around them need, rather than saying or being what you want to do. Let me ask you, do you consider what someone needs before you speak? Or is what you say all about you, how you feel? what you want to say. I believe all of us could stand to grow some in this. Be more discerning about when to rebuke and when to comfort. Let's just be honest. Most of our careless rebukes are all linked to places where we're saying something and we have no authority in that issue. Listen, you don't have a right to rebuke somebody just because they're in your church. I'll just say amen for myself there. Just because you're biblically knowledgeable and more mature or older 
does not mean it is your place to correct them. It was not Eliphaz's place to correct Job, but Eliphaz didn't care. You know, I actually, I really get weary of, of people who think it's their place to correct everyone and anyone just because you go to the same church. Uh, please, stop being so much like Eliphaz. Here's number two. Some bad things that happen in our life are God's loving correction. Others are for different reasons. In the New Testament, in Hebrews 12, it says, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. And though God chastens every one of his true children at times, not everything that happens in the life of a believer is the chastening of the Lord. That was the case with Job. Listen, Paul didn't face the adversity he faced because God was chastening him or for his failures as a Christian. They were adversity from Satan to expose Paul's true faith and how to live by faith in the midst of adversity. John wasn't exiled to Patmos to be chastened. Revelation 1 says he was there for the word of God, for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Why do we assume that everything bad that happens in someone's life is somehow God's discipline? Listen, as a Christian, when bad things happen to me, the first thing that I do when there are bad things outside of just normal bad things in a broken world with broken people is I pause and I think, okay, Lord, am I missing something? Am I not listening? Are you trying to teach me something? Have I done something I shouldn't do? By the way, I'd suggest you do the same thing. There is not a parent here who if you were disciplining your children wouldn't be glad to answer your child coming to you and say, Mama, why are you doing this to me? And none of us are better parents than God. Listen, if God is chastening you and disciplining you, he'll be glad to tell you why, if we ask. Now, some people don't know God well, and they think he uses hammers to break eggs. In fact, one of the first ways you know that discipline is not from God is when the consequence is much bigger than the offense or offense. Uh, many years ago, uh, we had... Uh, a husband and wife were visiting, and, and I went to their house to visit them. And uh, they didn't really, as it turns out, they didn't really want to come to here because a lot of the things that they wanted to do in their life, I preached against on a pretty regular basis. And so they wanted to go somewhere where they didn't preach against the stuff they wanted to do. But it was a very civil, it was a good, warm, heart-to-heart -heart conversation. And in the middle of that conversation, uh, she began to weep, and she looked at me, and she just said, Brother Wally, you know, my son died in a motorcycle accident. She told uh, about it. I forget how old he was. He was in his 20s, uh, uh, somewhere in his early 20s. And she said, you know, I, uh, I loved him more than I loved God. Do you think God took my son because I loved him more than I loved God? And here's what I said. I, I said, I, I'm not God, I don't know, but I doubt it because God doesn't break eggs with hammers. 
every parent struggles to love God more than their children. It's not right, but everybody struggles with it. And so I don't think God took your son for that. I actually think she found some comfort in it, but still didn't want to live differently. Though Job was not perfectly sinless, the pain and consequences in this life were much greater than his offenses, which should have let him know for sure this was not discipline from God. It was something else, and Eliphaz's accusations were completely wrong. Have you come to the conclusion that everything in your life and in the lives of others is discipline from God? If so, please stop being more like Eliphaz. Here's the third thing. We don't really know why bad things happen to other people. We need to stop pretending we do. Our own personal experience is unreliable unless it's in line with some principle or statement from the Bible. Let's just be honest. It's hard enough to figure out why bad things happen to us. Let alone feel like I know why bad things happen to you. See, as in every area of life, more humility about what we really know would help us all. Listen, Job was at a very fragile point in his life. And the last thing he needed was a friend jumping to wrong conclusions. Let me ask you, do you jump to conclusions about why bad things happen in the lives of other people? If so, please stop. Stop being more like Eliphaz. Which gets us to number four. Be leery of spiritual advice or thoughts of any sort that do not have a positive resolution as their end. Eliphaz seemed to be more enamored with his personal experience than he was putting his experience in the light of God's truth. Or to whatever degree he had that at that point in time. Listen, spiritual advice that leaves us condemned is almost never from God. Almost never. And the only exceptions are to that when God's patience has fully run out and the hammer is ready to draw and is drop and it's just too late to do anything about it. That's the only rare exception. Now, whether I succeed or not, God will ultimately judge. I hope I make God's path to forgiveness and mercy and restoration just as clear as I make the righteous ways he seeks from those of us who are saved. Let me ask you, are you leery of spiritual advice or thoughts of any sort that just push you down a dark hole without any hope of forgiveness? If so, please consider the end of that advice or of those thoughts, and it'll help you. And here's the last thing, number five. We need to respect the power of our words to either lift or further push someone down a black hole. There's some people, they just talk. They talk and they talk and they talk and they talk and they talk as if talking was the goal. It seems like very often they give very little thought to the effect of their words and those who listen to them. 
And this is especially true when we think we have more liberty to speak to someone because they're our friend. I don't debate. A genuine friend should have more freedom to speak than those who are not under our authority. But that does not mean we have the liberty to say what we want or jump to any conclusion we want. Let me ask you, are you careful with the power of your words and their effect on other people? Are you a gossip? A backstabber? Carelessly repeat things you heard that the person who told you them didn't really know? Do you know what I'm amazed? I'm amazed at the lack of people who come to me and want to know actually the truth about something. Please decide your words are going to be apples of gold in pitchers of silver instead of swords and arrows. Eliphaz's words were swords and arrows in a broken man. But Eliphaz is only the first of Job's three friends. Surely the other two will recognize Job's brokenness and try to lift him up, right? But that is for another time. If you bow your head and close your eyes.